Good morning, Paul. Happy Hi. to be here. Thank you for taking the time for my second episode on Let's Talk Tech with me. How are you today? Ah, uh, just waking up. Yeah, for the for the listeners, uh, Paul is located in Canada on the east Eastern Standard Time on the East Coast. I'm in Germany. We have six hours between us. So thank you for taking the first meeting early in the early morning. Yeah, um, it's, not, let me... it's, it's not so early, but it's uh, I'm. I had a late late night last night, so. Got it. Good. Thank you again for taking the time. I've been following your work for almost a year now. Um, the first time I came across your profile was thanks to your blog that you wrote about the Triumph Spitfire, the EV conversion project that you took into account back in 2016, 2017. Yeah, you see that? 20, 2014. And it's... Uh, 14. The, yes, the hood is hanging on the, uh, on, wow. on the wall back. Yeah, there. I see that. 2014. Wow, that's it's even earlier than I expected. So the blog, I think it's dated 2017. Yeah, right? the project was in 2014. 2014. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So tell me, tell me something, Paul. What, what motivated you to do the conversion in the first place? Um, well, we have to go back a little ways. Uh, my brother got a Triumph TR3 out of uh, out from under a haystack uh, back okay. in the 70s. And uh, my father and he fixed it up, and I fell in love with that car, even though I didn't have it for very long. He basically fixed it up, drove it for a little bit, and then sold it, um, sold it at a profit. And um, uh, so, in, when I was in university in in the uh, late 1980s, I bought a 1975 uh, Triumph Spitfire, and the thing that attracted me to that car in particular was the fact that when the hood came up the fenders came up with it and uh, you know it was kind of like a mini e-type jaguar uh, the problem yeah. is uh, you know I, I should have been smarter and realized that that was for a reason uh, the engines were, were basically made by the devil and uh, they were <laughs> you needed to be working on them all the time there were just so many fundamental problems with them especially that that um 1500 cc four cylinder that was in it so uh anyway uh after spending a whole bunch of time and not very much money but a lot of time on that car uh in the early 90s my father and i uh put a toyota Celica engine and transmission in it in order to try to get rid of some of the british leyland gremlins that were still testing it and unfortunately that engine didn't have a side draw intake and carburetor arrangement that you could just buy to to fit to it so it <laughs> kind of left us with a weird looking thing and it wasn't the best and uh eventually i kind of lost interest in the car and just kind of kept it around but i did keep it around uh, much to my wife's chagrin because she basically had always hated that car uh she thought it was terrifying because it's so loaded around and it sticks to the sticks to corners like glue. So of course you want to throw it around corners. So uh, yeah, she always hated that car and, and I kept it kind of out of spite. And in the, um, in, in the two thousands, I started thinking about what I could do with the car, whether I should restore it or what I should do with it. And I thought, well, I'm going to hold on to it until my son becomes old enough to be able to help. And, um, mm -hmm. So in 2014, he turned 11, and we um, 
I figured, okay, well, this would be a good time to do it. But at that point, I had already, I, I bought a, uh, a Prius in 2008, and I was just fascinated mm -hmm. by how well that car and its, you know, computer-integrated drive-by-wire system just worked and how seamlessly the electric uh, system worked, was integrated with the engine and so on. And I thought, wow, that, that's that's pretty amazing. I mean, I can imagine if batteries get cheap enough, we'll, we'll have electric vehicles uh, soon enough if, if Toyota can manage to do this with just hybridization. Mm -hmm. And I started reading... There, there was a there's a website it still exists although new owners have kind of ruined the community that was there when i was using it uh in earnest in 2013 doing the research for this project called diyelectriccar.com and there were a yeah. lot of people doing conversions in the 2008 2009 2010 time frame and they they followed basically two patterns uh, one was um, one was uh, people using series wound um, forklift motors, basically dancing mm -hmm. the brushes on them and then using DC controllers to run them. And then the other were using AC motors with inverters. And that's the route that I ended up going. But anyway, I started doing research for this project and, and realized, oh, you can actually afford to do this. I mean, it's expensive, especially the batteries. Right. But uh, you can afford to do this. And people are getting prod products out of it that that actually work so i did some i did some research i i got put the costing together and then decided yeah you know what it's expensive but it's going to cost me about half as much as to buy a um a nissan leaf which right. was available at the time and the nissan leaf won't turn heads or educate anyone it'll just be transportation this car would be really fun if it worked out. Yeah. Anyway, that's the, that's the motivation behind it, and and kind of uh, you know how I ended up uh, deciding to do it. You spoke a little bit about the the, the cells, the battery itself. Um, I saw from the blog that you use LFP cells. Uh, yeah, that was the thing that people were using at the time because they're they're pretty idiot resistant. I mean, nothing's idiot. Mm -hmm. The, but they're they're quite idiot resistant. The higher energy density chemistries, the ones with the nickel and cobalt in them, uh, and NCM and NCA um, uh, lithium ion batteries, they're they're much right. more hazardous. They're, you're you're working within a hair's breadth of the what's referred to as the electrochemical window of uh, the right. electric. Uh, so once you're up at high voltage, you're, you're destroying electrolyte <laughs> just mm -hmm. as you're charging and, uh, the, the likelihood of, uh, of failures and problems is much greater. The severity of those problems is much greater than with LFP. And the other thing is that the LFP cells are large prismatics. You have fewer cells to, to worry about. They're yeah, robustly exactly. packaged. Yeah. You don't have to, you know, a battery box is pretty brainless. You don't, you know, you're not really talking about needing to hold um, pouch cells in compression or right. you don't need cooling. I, I wasn't driving the car in the winter, so I didn't need to heat it because it's a two-seater mm -hmm. convertible. Uh, so, you know, it, the prismatics just make everything super easy. But even better than that 
they make it possible for you to change things later and to swap cool. cells out and do other things with them. And so, yeah, the prismatics were, <laughs> they're a no brainer. Oh man. If I was to do a project car project again, I would not be trying to reintegrate, even though they're cheaper. Uh, if you can get your hands on them, uh, I wouldn't be trying to reintegrate Tesla uh, modules or something like that no. because they're, you know, the Tesla modules are just, they're hazardous. Unless yeah. they're put into a design enclosure with, you know, uh, intumescent materials and fire spread prevention, fire isolation, and all the stuff that goes into the design of a of, of a pack, uh, you, you know, they're just really hazardous. Whereas the, pris the LFP prismatics, I mean, you can fire bullets through them. They'll vent, but they yeah, that's, you know. That's true. That's true. I mean, they are pretty robust in, the, in that. Yeah, fashion. they're that's just, reasons, I think. There's a really good video that I saw when I was doing research for the project. Uh, guys in, from Sinopoly in, in China that um, uh, I guess they were advertising the robustness of their of their prismatics. They did a bunch yeah. of temperature tests on them. So it's a really great video. It's all in Chinese and, uh, you know, very little dialogue, fortunately, um, at, with, with Chinese uh, subtitles underneath. And the, um, the it, okay, so the, the guy fires a pistol at one of the cells. That's one thing that he does. Uh, another is they short circuit a cell terminal to terminal with, you know, a short jumper of uh, uh, quadruple zero, you know, four aught uh, welding cable. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They do the typical nail penetration test. They they uh, they chuck one of the batteries into a a burn barrel. You know, mm -hmm. they had a, a barrel with a wood fire in it, and they they chucked it in there, and wow. you, know, you don't see any devastating uh, uh, explosion and and uh, you know big fireball or anything. It, it's 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 actually a very non exciting video. And that may, that gave me comfort that oh okay well <laughs> I guess uh, I can use these things and, and not have to worry too much and it, it proved correct because in 2018 uh, the car was hit by a, a big pickup truck mm -hmm. and uh, the car was destroyed but the electric stuff came through the crash just fine I, I mean I didn't actually there were no cells punctured the battery box was wasn't touched. Uh, neither the front one or the back one uh because that stuff was all well well kept away from the the crumple zones and so on and the guy had hit me on, on the side and spun the car around and then shoved it sideways down the road wow yeah. uh there was enough force that he'd actually ripped one of the tires off the um off the rim uh wow. And yeah, fortunately, I wasn't injured. The car was just, yeah, there was no way that, you know, my hundreds of hours of restoration work that I'd done. That's, that, you know, if I've got one piece of advice for anybody that's thinking of doing a car conversion, start with a better car. I mean, the Triumphs are beautiful, but, you know, don't start with the one. I started with the one I had because I, I thought, well, I have it. You know, but what I should have done is I should have gotten myself a, you know, an Arizona or New Mexico or California car that had no substantial rust on it. Instead right. of, you know, spending hundreds of hours trying to 
keep ahead of stage four multi metastatic car cancer. You know, it was just there was no fixing that thing. And it, it, you know, not not to be rude to the audience, but basically trying to polish a turd is just not worth the effort. You know, it, that car should have been scrapped, and it should have started with a better one. But but uh, because all that work in the end ended up being ruined. Um, good yeah. news though is that I managed to find a. a 1973 TR6 that I bought for quite a reasonable price and I had no intention to convert it. But British Leyland products being what they are, the transmission right. died within six months of buying it. And I said, forget it. I'm not spending another cent on this stupid thing. So so I actually took the Spitfire's um electric drivetrain and, and put it into the uh put it into the TR6. And that was super That's easy. Right. <laughs> I just basically <laughs> dropped right in. I had to make a new battery box. I had to make a new front battery box and a few other things, but it was like super easy. So okay, so you use the exact same system, but a few modifications to fit into your new oh, car. Oh yeah, almost nothing. Like I, I mean, I just had to change the battery box just to fit. You know, okay. uh, so I made a new battery box so that it fit the new geometry because, of course, this car doesn't have the hood that takes the fenders with it. It's it's just a That's conventional. True conventional um engine compartment which made working conditions much worse you know you basically end up spending a lot of time bent over and <laughs> yeah, sort of... <laughs> I, I didn't really go into the motivations too much I, I guess i should go back and talk about that for a second I, I i've been a lifelong environmentalist and i've been very concerned about global warming since i first heard about it um in the late 1980s when i was going to university I figured, well, this is the new, this is the problem that's going to define our age. And so it's going to, you know, fundamentally change chemical engineering, which is what I was studying. And so there's no point in going into the oil and gas industry because it's a dying industry. And here we are, you know, 30 plus years later, and the oil and gas industry is still here. And in fact, oil demand, although it's slowing and electric vehicles are, are going to take a chunk out of it. And the the effect will be more profound and more rapid than a lot of people think. It's still not done yet, and that's yeah. been one of my great disappointments. And when you know, I, I I live in Ontario in Canada, where the grid is forty grams of CO two equivalent per kilowatt hour. You know, this, mm-hmm. so this is a grid that the rest of the world pretty much you know aspires to. We have yeah. already. And the reason that our grid is that good is a combination of hydro and um, and nuclear, and with mm-hmm. a, about as much wind as natural gas. And natural gas is used largely for peaking. And we got rid of our coal last coal-fired plant in 2013, so there's no coal in the grid at all. So, if electric vehicles don't make sense in Ontario, they don't make sense anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, anyway, I, I wanted to, when I built this car, I wanted, first of all, I wanted a cool car because my drive to work was just soul crushing. Uh, okay. So I wanted a cool car to drive back and forth to work. I wanted the emissions to be as close to eliminated as practical. I wanted, uh, something that could get me to work and back. And, uh, I succeeded with that. It, I, that drive was, uh, 122 kilometers, uh, every day. Okay. So, um, 61 kilometers each way, uh, 37 miles for people in the other system each way. 
and uh, th it was the same distance every day. So, you know, my target for range was pretty straightforward. Get to work even during a um, situation where there's a major road closure and I have to divert. And, uh, you know, fast charging was just not something that was required. So I, yeah, you, you know, do. level one charger, yeah. I charged it from a landscaping outlet. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. in Canada and the United States, we have only 120 volt AC, so yeah. only 1.3 kilowatts, which is really slow. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, you know, I charged that car. I never waited for charging. I charged that car. I plugged it in when I got to work into a landscaping okay. outlet, and I plugged it in when I got home. And the only problem I, I, uh, you know, imagined was that, you know, perhaps I would come in some, some morning and get fired. And then I would have to wait a few hours before I could drive, drive home, you know, uh, but that didn't happen. So, uh, but yeah, I, I decided I wanted, I wanted the data as well. I wanted a car there where I could actually make measurements because mm -hmm. I was having a hard time believing when people, you know, I knew that lead acid batteries were not very energy efficient. Mm -hmm. They generate a lot of heat and they generate a lot of, um, they, they generate hydrogen when they're balance charged. So they're not very energy efficient. Uh, and um, when I found out that lithium ion batteries were 90 plus percent energy efficient on a return basis, I was fascinated by that. I thought, wow, that, how is that possible? I have to see if that's true. And so I made sure that the car was capable of making the measurements. And then, of course, being a chemical engineer and somebody interested in environmental issues, I ran all the calcs, you know, all the source to wheels calculations, mm -hmm. compared it against the original car and against my Prius. And the results were shocking. So this little homemade conversion dropped my greenhouse gas emissions from source by 97% relative to wow. the same car running on gasoline, the exact same car running on gasoline. I love that. But the really shocking one is they dropped my emissions by 94% relative to my Prius, which is still the, you know, most efficient gasoline car or well, gasoline or diesel car you can buy in Canada that doesn't come with a plug. So, you know, is two orders of magnitude good enough? Is that good yeah, enough? That's I a question. Think that's good and honestly, I think that's good <laughs> enough, right? And the embodied emissions, I looked into the embodied emissions and I did that again when new studies came out in 2019. Uh, and, you know, the embodied emissions pay back super fast. So, yeah, mm -hmm. car, electric vehicles here in, in Canada are an absolute no brainer. And, uh, you know, I've got the data to prove it. So I was going around to schools and doing talks and, and, so um, you know, wrote that wrote that article for my um, uh, Toronto Triumph Club uh, news magazine and mm -hmm. started putting articles on LinkedIn and expanding them and then got interested in, in explaining to people why hydrogen was a bad idea uh, as a transport fuel and basically as a fuel period, which seems to be my current uh, area of... Uh, of interest or, or at least uh, area of communication. So I, I actually ended up, you know, <laughs> be careful what you do when you wake up in the morning. One day you might decide as a hobby to do a car conversion. And five years later, you may end up, you know, working on your own as a consultant, uh, leaving your job of 26 years and uh, having more fun working than... <laughs> 
you have in, in decades, uh, yeah. you know, uh, and doing something that's just entirely, un, you know, not, not unrelated, but diff- different than what you were doing before. So yeah, it's, it's, you've got to be careful. It's like that line, you got to be careful, uh, what happens when you wake up in the morning, you know, the, those first few steps out the door can determine the rest of your life. I truly envy that. It's the way you put it. Looks like you're living a dream now. Thanks. Oh, I'm having, I'm having a great time in my new consulting, yeah. my consulting business, which has been, I mean, I've always had a consulting business, but it was kind of low key and was doing things that my employer uh, wasn't interested in doing for a variety of mm-hmm. different reasons. Um, but I was interested in, and I wanted to, you know, I had customers from previous employee or friends or whatever, people would call me up and say, Hey, can you do this? My former employer wasn't interested in doing that kind of work because they were sticking to their knitting, which was smart on their part. And, uh, you know, when the kids came along, we were busy, um, I sure. really didn't do too much, but I, I woke it up in the later years because my interests were getting more and more diverse and, and less aligned with what I was doing for a living. And um, the car project was just the catalyst to get to start writing articles. And people started mm-hmm. getting to know me outside of my normal circle of clients and, and exposure uh, through work. And as a consequence of that, and the co- a consequence of helping to co-found this organization called the Hydrogen Science Coalition, which is trying to help mm-hmm. uh, counteract the hyperbole about hydrogen, out there, um, I've gotten to be fairly well known. And so people are calling me up all the time and I get to pick and choose projects and clients and getting rid of a bad client is way easier than getting rid of a bad boss. So, you know, it's It's really fantastic. (laughs) And all of this comes down to this little project that I decided to do with my son. Uh, So yeah, anyway, that's amazing. Oh, oh, and the consulting business, uh, consulting business bought bought me a Tesla Model Y, so I have a real yeah. car now too. So. Congratulations on that! How how are you liking that? The Model Y oh, long range. I love it. it I, it's fantastic. It, you Isn't know, it? I, it's a little embarrassing, honestly, because the energy efficiency is about the same. It's better. <laughs> well, it's no, it's about the same as oh, okay. as my uh, my uh, little two seater convertible was. So yeah, it's I mean, watt hours per watt hours per um, per mile are almost exactly the same as what I got. I you know I measured the uh, the Spitfire's performance, what I call it the E fire. Okay. I measured its performance for thirteen thousand miles. I used a kilowatt meter um, to measure the um, measure the uh, feed energy coming from the wall, and then I used the uh, onboard amp hour meter to calculate how much energy ended up in the battery. And, uh, you know, I did a really accurate assessment of the mm-hmm. uh, energy efficiency and compared it against uh, an electrical engineer that did it in the States who did a conversion, got basically identical results. The differences between the two were largely the, actually the biggest thing that was uh, sucking energy from that cycle wasn't the batteries. It was the, um, the charge controller. And the charge mm-hmm. controller uh, that each of us used was a, a kind of low volume Chinese thing that people okay. in the conversion community were using this thing called an Elcon. Okay. And my Elcon blew my Elcon blew up uh, 
two years ago, I think. And just said, oh, okay. forget it. I'm not going to spend any more money. I'm not going to buy another stupid Elcon or, or, or buy another low market volume um, charger that's hard to repair and so on. I, I only need 1.3 kilowatts because that's all I can draw from the wall. So I built myself a real, you know, Frankenstein <laughs> charger. It is, it's the, it's the simplest, most brainless thing. Uh, and it, you know, dead reliable. Uh, so yeah, it, it basically, because my battery pack is 105 volts, uh, nominal. Uh, I basically have a, a great big bridge rectifier that's fed by a, a variable auto transformer or Variac. Mm -hmm. And then I have a, a solid state relay that turns the AC on and off that allows my uh, battery management system to turn the AC on and off. And that's my charger. Now it's not power factor corrected. You know, industrially, this would be a terrible thing because it's taking all the power from the, <laughs> all the power from the middle of the waveform. Uh, but that's okay because it's residential yeah. and no one cares. And it's only 1.3 kilowatts. So, yeah, I've been charging with that thing uh, for um, for the past couple of years, and it works. It works great. And total of a hundred bucks, I think. Wow! <laughs> Does not take notes. Oh well, wow. you know. But the hundred volts you mentioned, the nominal voltage of your battery pack. So that number you came from your requirements that you need to drive to work sixty-one kilometers each way. That is that being your baseline for calculating every other number. Is that correct? So, so, so yeah, basically, when you're sizing the pack, there are a bunch of parameters that are important. First of all, you need to know how many kilowatt hours you're going to need, right? right. Second, you need to know how much power you're going to draw. And how, uh, so that, you know, basically that determines your, your, um, uh, your current once you know your voltage and, and the, mm -hmm. what, what inverter you're going to use uh, determines what voltages you can tolerate. You know, inverter motor combination uh, determine your the voltage range that you can have, and then you can basically then you just work backwards and figure out. Oh, okay, well I can use cells of this size and arrange them in so many cells in series, so many cells in parallel. Here's what the voltage will be when the pack is at fully charged. Here's what it'll be when it's fully discharged. Will the inverter be able to handle that? And then you you also have to look at, again at the at the current rate of the right. cell to determine whether or not the inverter is going to be drawing at peak too much current. And, and you know, of course, inverters are adjustable, so you can tell it don't draw sure. any more than this current if you want. Sure. But mm -hmm. what's the fun in that? You know. So the 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 drive drive system that I use is from a company called High Performance Electric Vehicle Systems in California. They're great, great people, great customer service, great product. They don't make their own inverters. They use an inverter that's made by a company called Curtis, but they do oh, yeah. their own programming of that inverter. And they, they basically have programmed a very nice vehicle control system uh -huh. into that inverter which gives you all these features that, that you want. The only problem that I have with that system is that uh, communication with it is not straightforward. So if you want to make any configuration changes yourself, there are, there's kind of a, you know, key switch and a, and a menu button that you can use okay. the display. And that works for most things, 
but it's a little buggy. Okay. You know, re updating the firmware is not something that you can do yourself. You have to basically send the inverter back to California and get them to do it. And okay. that, just to say, I, I have some things that I'd like to change. I, I'm not going to change it because I'm not going to take the inverter out of the car and send it to California and hope. Sure. I so, sure, yeah. you know, I'm just not, I'm just coping with it. I'm just going to live with it. But you can buy a very expensive, uh, I think it's a CAN bus communicator. Sure. Yeah. You know, from Curtis that will allow you to make certain changes and, or you can find, you know, find a friend or, or a company that has one and let them, and, you know, they might let you borrow it or, or drive there and use it. So if I get desperate, I'll do that. But that's the only thing okay. I complain I have about that whole system. Everything else is great. The motor is just a really straightforward, you know, C-face electric induction motor. Okay. Uh, and super easy to, to work with. Uh, the the way that it mounts onto the transmission that's actually put together by a guy in Canada who's now retired uh, named Randy Holmquist and what Randy did is he built a whole bunch of transmission mounting plate to motor mm -hmm. mounting uh, uh, plate arrangements and then matching hubs to match the motor to the um, to the flywheel. And okay. so it's really simple then because you, you know, and the, the, the way that he's made these plates is they're, they're made out of cast aluminum and they use the dowel pins that one would, you know, have on the motor, on the engine, uh, to align with the transmission. So what you know, okay. the problem that you end up with when you're making your own is getting that alignment and the alignment, alignment yeah. is plus or minus five thousandths of an inch is the general tolerance on getting, you know, the center of that shaft, that sure. input shaft, exactly where it needs to be driven. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Randy's system takes care of all of that. If if you, now he, he made them for a few different vehicles. And as it turns out, he had made one for the, the Toyota transmission that I'd used uh, when okay. I converted the Spitfire over to a Toyota engine back in, in the early nineties. So that was really simple. You know, that was push the easy button, give Randy a thousand Canadian dollars. And, uh, instead of the mounting the, the motor to the transmission becoming this ordeal that, you know, takes ages, That's I had the motor mounted to the transmission in half an hour, you know, okay. <laughs> It's, it's worth mentioning that you, you decided to keep your transmission as it is. I did, yes. And, and yeah, well, you see, people always ask, why do you do that? And, the, you know, the transmission's a nuisance. It's an energy, the energy waster, but only in a very minor way, actually. Manual very transmission, very little, yeah. efficient. it's extra weight. Oh, well, not that much extra weight. Uh, what it does is it does two things most important thing that it does is it gives you options. Okay. Yeah. So my car would be perfectly drivable if I just put it in third gear, you know, but it would be boring. It, it you know, the off the line performance would be good, but not electric car. Right. Yeah. And the top speed would be limited to maybe, you know, 120 kilometers an hour, which is as fast as you really should drive. Right. But the, yeah. beauty, the beauty of this um, 
of this transmission is that it gives you options. So if somebody's looking at you, giving you the side eye at a, at a stoplight, you can put it in first gear. You know, and when you're on the highways, you don't want the you don't want the motor spinning at spinning at four thousand RPM or six thousand RPM, which is where it tops out, where the torque curve starts to drop back off again. You can um, you can you know put it in fourth, and you don't use the clutch to you know. There's no sure you know you all you're using the clutch for is just to make gear changes. That's it, and uh, so the clutch will last forever. So, yeah, yeah, from my perspective, you know, keeping the transmission is kind of a no-brainer. I don't know why people don't do it. Uh, well, I understand why they don't do it. In, in the old days, when you were using a, these series-wound uh, forklift motors, there was no need for a transmission. I mean, yeah, that's true. The transmission just got that's true. You know, these things had 350 foot-pounds of torque. <laughs> you know, yeah. Just, you know, <laughs> and as long as you as long as you match the 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 final drive speed well enough and you can tolerate the yeah. result it's just it's no problem but yeah with yeah. with a ac motor yeah the transmission's a good idea so yeah so we spoke about your battery system your your uh, conversion product you're having here transmission as it is just to touch quickly based on the the bms the battery management system and the high voltage uh, systems where sure. did you get your inspiration from? Did you also use the DIY electric car? Yeah, DIY, that's the nice thing about a community like DIY electric car is that there are people doing projects and they're using everything that's out there. You know, so there were developers mm -hmm. who were developing new BMSs that were, you know, frequent con con contributors to that uh, that site. There's another site mm -hmm. called Endless Sphere, which is more around motorcycles and, and e-bikes. Uh, mm -hmm. That was somewhat useful, but but uh, DIY electric car was where I was comfortable, and there were good people there who knew what they were doing. One one of the people there, in the late two thousands, had developed an open source project that was called Mini BMS, and that's okay. what I ended up using. But unfortunately, he got bored and sold sold out, and the the people that bought it just abandoned it didn't bother to oh, pursue it so you can't get replacement parts anymore so i okay. i sent out a plea uh on linkedin uh, to my thousands of followers saying hey does anybody happen to have a uh, any mini bms boards lying around because a couple of my cell phone boards are are uh, a little bit wonky uh, but the nice thing about mini BMS is it's a really quite brainless system. There's a cell top board that you put on each prismatic cell, and then they have relays on them, little little sure. relays. Um, and they just open circuit anytime that that cell's an alarm, whether it's high voltage or low voltage. And then there's a little board mm -hmm. that just, depending on the state of the key switch, it knows that open circuit means high voltage or open circuit mm -hmm. means low voltage. <laughs> Right, and if if it goes open circuit uh, when when you're uh, when you're charging, then mm -hmm. it will, you know has has a little output that'll allow you to turn a BMS on. Uh, sorry, you turn a charger on and off, and so that's pretty much what I used. It's pretty brainless. It doesn't give you any data. There's no uh, cell voltages recorded. Uh, you can't use it to figure out what which cells are degrading. Sure. Uh, you know, do temperature compensations or any of that stuff, right? That, that's all more sophisticated. Now, the other thing that people were using is this product that's made uh, 
made in the States somewhere called Orion. Much more sophisticated, much more expensive. It, there are okay. many of them now. Um, yeah, there are so many of them now that, that the, you know, your options are it largely the dilemma you run into is the same dilemma. However, the products that give good features and are reasonably priced tend to be designed around people that are going to implement hundreds and hundreds of them. So they all have the same yeah. kind of thing. You got to buy a software license and, you know, sure. that software in order to be able to configure it. And there's all this upfront cost that doing a single project just would never, ever justify. And then there are more expensive products like Orion, which are pretty brainless and easy to work with right out of the box, you know, and they'll give you the data and you can, you can buy uh software that'll allow you to communicate what a lot of people have is uh they'll get out an android tablet and they'll mount that on their dash and then they have this uh, uh, uh bluetooth communication with the android tablet that will give you cell cell by cell data pack data sure, everything sure. you could possibly want um you know plus the brainless thing to turn the uh, charger on and off but by and large that that part of the project with mini bms it was one of the easiest parts of the project and it wasn't terribly expensive either and not sophisticated so easy conceptually you know you don't have to learn a bunch of programming to to work with it nice and simple and very adaptable you know if i want to drop if i want to take a group of four cells and charge them with my 12 volt battery charger i can do that right sure, and I sure, can sure. figure those four, four those four uh BMS top uh, boards with a relay and uh, have the, uh, you know, no worry about any one cell going over voltage. So. Got it. I'm just looking at the time. Um, maybe question, two more questions to finish it off. Oh yeah, um, sure. One of the things that I, I, I was, I was really impressed with was you involved your, your son. I think he was 12 years old at that time mm -hmm. uh, yeah. in your project. Yeah. And one of the things which is which I've seen hundreds and hundreds of hours uh, during my time at Vivasa uh, and BMW is how much effort that you have to put into uh, in, in in the case of high voltage safety. You know, you are still in the in the in the brims of high voltage because anything beyond sixty volt is at least the industry standard. Anything is above forty eight, yeah, anything exactly. above forty eight volts is already to the point where you're worried about potential lethality. So were was I worried about that with this project? Well, I mean, I I, I did have my son help me um, bolt up the uh, the battery pack, but we went you know stage by stage taping off uh, cell terminals as as we went, and uh, you know it, the the risk of electrocution is very very low. Uh, okay. I have I've been I've worked with high voltages myself in past i mean over here on the can't see it uh, off camera here but there's a um a laser power supply which has a kickover voltage of, of i don't know five thousand volts or something like that uh in order to get an arc to strike in a in an argon tube uh okay. i've worked with high voltages before uh, i'm not deterred by it i know what's what's required from a safety perspective if this pack was 400 volts yeah, it's I'd, a different be, story. I'd be much more concerned. And now you're talking yeah. about having to have a, you know, you need a charger that has a, a, a boost stage, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, that has a, a DC, 
well, either on the AC side or on the DC side, a, a boost stage in order to get up from um, household voltages to pack voltage. That's getting a lot more worrisome. You're going to have capacitors with, you know, enough oomph to kill you. <laughs> Uh, sitting, sitting there, even if the battery pack itself is away from you, you know. So yeah. Anyway, uh, it's 100, uh, 105 volts. I've seen how far that arc can travel before it extinguishes. That's yeah. one of the things about DC arcs, is, you know, welding. It's amazing. <laughs> I had a funny one of the things that's required in Canada. Uh, so in order to put a vehicle on the road, you have to follow a safety checklist and a registered mm -hmm. mechanic has to, has to ensure that everything on the safety checklist has been met. And of course, it's really important if you're doing a conversion to meet a mechanic, to know a mechanic who will follow the safety checklist and not go beyond it. Got it. Because it's, you know, it's a regulatory thing. And, and uh, as long as they're interested in uh, helping you get the vehicle on the road and they're willing to let you worry about the stuff that's not on the checklist yourself and they're they're assured that you're competent to do that that work and you haven't done anything ridiculous uh mm -hmm. then you're okay but one of the things that is required is you must have a windshield defogger now this was a two-seater convertible so windshield defogger is just a joke uh, yeah, but but it's it's required it's on the checklist so you must have it okay. so i had to come up with a windshield defogger and so what I did is I, I got a um, I got a 120 volt AC uh, hair dryer, and I okay. dis disassembled it and realized that it's actually fundamentally a DC device. The the, the fan is a DC fan that's yeah. run off of a diode that's placed partway along the coil of heating wire. Uh, so that acts basically as a as a voltage divider. So I went, oh okay, as long as I pick you know, plus and minus the correct way. This thing is a DC device. I can run it on DC. You know, I got rid of all the things that I was worried about. So I, I put a Fernco coupling, this rubber coupling that's used in plumbing uh, onto the end of this little portable hairdryer and connected that to one of the hoses that went up to the windshield. And hey, presto, I had a, a windshield defogger, but I had to, and I could run this right off the pack. The 105 volts is just about perfect but I needed a DC relay to turn that thing on and off. And so I had a DC mm -hmm. relay and it had more than adequate ampacity uh, for, for the job. And I thought, okay, well, I'll use that. So I, <laughs> I turned it on and I went, oh, great. It's running. It works great. So I shut the relay off and the current didn't stop. And I went, hmm, this is puzzling. And then the relay started melting. Oh, yeah. And I went, oh, Okay, yeah, I guess that's not going to work. So I had to find a, you know, I, I couldn't find a relay that had proper arc snuffers on it or what have you. But I did find a relay that I, I had enough, I could had enough terminals that I had enough air gap that I could actually extinguish an arc uh, in in a more conventional way, um, and yeah. use that, and that it, was fine. But yeah, I was really surprised because like, holy crap. <laughs> Devilish in detail, right? The, the air and creepage distance is one of the most overlooked things, even in the high voltage design. Oh and yeah, there is just yeah. It up. I mean, that arc, that arc will travel a long way, uh, and um, uh, you know, remain stable. Once you've got it struck, it, it will it will remain stable and, and run a long way. And you have to you have yeah. to defeat it in you know magnetic fields are a way to do that. And often they'll have uh, permanent magnets uh, in the relay that will do 
that will serve that purpose of snuffing that arc, you know, dragging it away exactly. um, so exactly. that it it's But anyway, the, things you learn, right? I mean, it, I well, learned the biggest. It didn't didn't hurt anybody. Didn't didn't set the car on fire. It was all fine. So well, the biggest takeaways for me through your through the talks that we have today and also your blog is you don't have to have a four hundred board system, and that is one of the key misunderstanding of in conversion projects, I believe, out there that you start with 400, bigger is better. It's actually not better. The simplest solutions are most of the time the best solutions oh my there goodness. is. Right? Yeah, I would not recommend that anybody, you know, if I, if I was talking to somebody about doing a conversion project, unless they were very knowledgeable, I would not recommend that they try to repurpose OEM parts. Yeah. Because repurposing OEM parts, those are all designed at high voltage in order to keep currents down, which you can understand why. Mm -hmm. Why you'd want to do that. But, oh man, copper is cheap compared to the life safety related stuff that you have to do with high voltage. I would just exactly. not monkey around with high voltage. It, yeah. You know, 100 volts yeah. is more than enough. <laughs> 144 volts is the nominal voltage of, of uh, the highest input voltage uh inverter that hpvs sells so okay. you know they align with that now of course that means your currents are very large and you need batteries that, that can handle the c rate necessary to generate the currents necessary to sure. generate the power that's that's required so we're talking about hundreds of amperes in in this case 650 amp is the peak current uh yeah but that's 650 amps for 15 thrilling seconds, you know, uh, and, that, and that's every once in a while, you know, so not really a big, okay. not a big deal. And you also have the thermal mass of the big battery, which can, you know, take up that heat. That is oh, yeah. oh my goodness. And their efficiency is very high. So, and the yeah. same thing with the, you know, I don't have uh, conductors that are rated for a continuous 650 amperes, you know, <laughs> the car yeah. has yeah. difficulty carrying them. Uh, but yeah. they, you know, my conductors will definitely handle 15 seconds at 650 amperes without the insulation going over the temperature or, or you know, any other any other risks or worries. So, yeah, and yeah. I've been, uh, proof in the pudding. The car, the original car, was built in 2014. It, you know, it's 2023. It's in another car, and the complete disassembly and inspection, everything's great. Uh, you know, things keep going strong. The only problem that I have is my batteries, original batteries are, are developing higher internal resistance now. They're starting to get sure. to the point where they're reaching their end of life. So they're going to need mm -hmm. replacement. The nice thing is that in a package volume that's smaller and a mass per cell that's smaller, I can replace my original 180 amp hour cells with 280 amp hour cells. <laughs> Same space, right? Same exactly. Same space. Exactly. Yeah. Same space. So uh, yeah, if I if I redo the car, uh, the battery pack, the range is going to go up by a lot. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Paul, thank you so much for your time. I would love to go on, but I don't want to take too much of your time. Oh I really my goodness, appreciate sir. You I, time. Yeah, I I could talk about this all day because I I love this. But one thing I would just say is that you know there are people out there in the conversion community who do a conversion and then think oh well this is for everybody and it's not for everybody yeah. <laughs> in fact it's only for crazy people basically who have more money than brains and who are and who are in love with a particular car 
you know, this is not worth doing. Oh my goodness. You go on DIY electric car. There are people that, you know, love is, is obviously something that's a, irrational, right? Very the way you put it. And there, there's a yeah. guy, there's a guy who puts so much love into converting geo metros. I don't know if you're familiar with what the geo metro is, but it was an econ box, you know, yeah. of crap car. Uh, <laughs> he loves them for some reason. And I just, he did four of them. And I was like, what is the matter with you, man? Pick something that looks nice at least. And, you know, it's fun to drive. It's a geo metro for pity's sake. It's like, it's like, uh, you know, doing an electric conversion of a Trabant or something, you know? Uh, one I understand, but four is is, is, is up there. Well, he's, he's making them and selling them to people that wanted, wanted okay, cars. But I mean, oh my goodness, like why do that when you could have as an example, you know, these triumphs are super cheap and they're mm -hmm. you know uh, uh, body on on frame construction, so they, simple, they're yeah. infinitely restorable and uh, look beautiful. And when you get rid of the British Leyland drivetrain and leave only the differential, you know, because you do it you would use their transmission, you get rid of 80% yeah. of the problems with the car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's it's also Triumph is one of the cars that I got to know thanks to the Top Gear episodes. James May drove it around, drizzling rain, and he was having a lot of fun of it. And you could see the... The, the appeal of that car, right? It's oh, yeah. you would not buy a Triumph if you actually don't love it. You don't get it for just for the sake of it, right? Well, you you know the I would say that the the little British sports cars um, they they have an appeal that's instant. You know, you just yeah. look at the thing, you go, oh, isn't yeah. that adorable? You know, and, yeah. and a lot of people will do that. But, it, you know, even even the ones that are, are really not all that exciting, uh, they they're just really cute. And uh, yeah. that's kind of trans translated over a little bit to the Mazda Miata. So that's the, true. One of those beautiful that, cars. Uh, yeah. You know, it, people look at those and had the same kind of reaction. It's just something very appealing about a cute little two-seater sports car that's not, you know, not a performance machine, not intended to knock anybody's socks off, but fun to drive. And yeah, uh, yeah it, that's the sort of thing to convert. Not a, not a car that has a vehicle control system in it that you have to, like, unless you're a software person and that's your thing and you want to go in and figure out how to, how to tell the vehicle control system that it's okay that half the car is missing because all those sensors are gone now. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's okay. You can keep functioning. Don't worry. The car hasn't been in some catastrophic accident where, where half the sensors are now missing and, and in fault. Uh, you know, if you want to monkey around with that sort of thing, that's fine. But if you start with a car that's old enough, none of that crap's there. Exactly. You, you, yeah, you, well, you end up with a little kludgy things, like as an example, in the, in the TR6, it had vacuum assist on the uh, brake master cylinder. So I have a very, I have a very sophisticated system that consists of a chunk of PVC pipe with some PVC plates glued onto the end of it, and a little, uh, you know, twelve volt diaphragm pump, vacuum pump that that pulls the vacuum on that little chamber, and that's connected to the uh, 
connected to the vacuum assist. So when I step on the on the hydraulic brakes, I actually don't have to put both feet on on the pedal in order to stop the car. But of course, you know, the regenerative braking does most of the work. Uh, That's true. So you're really only talking about either a situation where regenerative braking has failed or you can't use it because it's, you know, as an example, these cars are rear wheel drive, wet weather, you really don't want to rear bias the braking on the car. So I have a switch that, you know, in wet weather, um, you shut off the uh, regenerative braking entirely because what you don't want to do is to load up the rear brakes, uh, (laughs) you know, and have the car stuck in the 360. Uh, you know, down I mean, it down. could be a good 360 though if you want to. <laughs> well, it could be really fun, you know, or whatever, yeah. uh, uh, out of control handbrake turn or whatever. Uh, exactly. But probably not when you are trying to brake hard in an emergency situation. Oh, I have to tell you a funny story. So, okay. in the Spitfire, in the Spitfire, um, one of the things that's implemented in the vehicle control system is a, a switch that senses the position of of the clutch pedal. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to use this, but it's handy because what it does is it lets the, uh, lets the inverter know when you're shifting gears, you don't want to hard regen and decelerate the motor to zero RPM all of a sudden because the load goes away. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, So what, what it does is when you put your foot on the clutch pedal, it tells the, uh, tells the, uh, controller or the inverter shut off regen for a minute you know okay. uh, because we're, we're changing gears well as it turns out i used a micro switch and it was just an open type micro switch for 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 this purpose and it happened to be lined up with the driver's side uh front front tire which has, has a a a, a uh, fender on it but not mm-hmm. it's not Perfect, right? So a little bit of water would get up there and it would get on the switch and the switch would flake on. And so it was a bug of the design, right? Because I was too cheap to buy a proper switch. I used what I had, but it turned into a feature that whenever it was wet, the clutch switch would be on all the time and that would defeat regen. So... It's, it's not a bug. It's a feature. It's not a bug. It's a feature. Exactly. This is, this is the way this thing is designed. It was rather like the, you know, my paint job. It, this is the first and the last car I've ever painted. Um, and uh, I did it in winter in my garage. And it, it basically was a balancing act between keeping the garage warm enough that the paint would flow properly and ventilating it well enough that I wouldn't die. You know, I, I have a full face respirator and so on, but I was using a good stuff with the free isocyanate in it. And, and I like to be alive, so I didn't want to kill myself. So I had to ventilate really well. And so I aired a little bit on the side of ventilation as opposed to paint flow. And so the whole car is orange peel. And it was orange, as you can see. It's, you know, topaz yeah. orange, very, very 1970s color. And orange peel. And uniform orange peel over the whole car. And so I would take the car to, uh, uh, to car shows. And I'd originally, I was going to cut it and, you know, and polish it. But what, when I was done, I looked at it and went, this is perfect. I'm leaving it. Yeah. So I would take yeah. it to car shows and, and people would say, so you painted the car yourself. I see. It's like, yeah. And you know what skill it takes 
to get the whole car to be orange peel without a single flat spot on it anywhere, that takes skill. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, not a bug, it's a feature. <laughs> exactly. It looked great. It was orange and it was orange peel finish. It was amazing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So awesome. Hey, Thank you again. Talking to you again. Was, and uh, awesome you, can tell, talking with you. you can tell I'm passionate about this stuff. I love it. But again, yeah, conversions that people ask me also, are people going to make conversion kits so that we can get the embodied energy of existing cars and keep them and so on? And it's like, no. No, the existing engine cars are largely going to be scrapped and it'll be, you know, conversion is always going to be an enthusiast thing, yeah. a fun thing that Yeesh. crazy people do, or, or yeah. a fun thing that rich people pay other crazy people to do for them. Uh, and like, like what EV West is doing. And that's great. I mean, nothing wrong with that at all. I, lo I, I love it. I, I'm glad to see uh, that, the, you know, the purists that tut tut the notion of touching anything, although, you know, they even want the original light bulbs uh, in, in the car. Yeah, you know, I mean, I have no, no patience for that. I want a car to be drivable. And it's not a piece of jewelry. It never has been for me. So so I have no patience for that thing. But yeah, my, my point being is that uh, conversions are not going to be a decarbonization strategy for, for, for vehicles, but they are a fun thing to do as a, as a hobbyist thing. And in my case, as an educational thing, you know, 10 years ago, this was a pretty cool thing to be doing. And now it's a little bit more routine because, I mean, everybody's got a Everybody's got their own electric car or, or has thought about buying one. And I, I have one myself now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I mean, you're certainly inspiring this uh, movement now. At least you have inspired me. And uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to share your article when I post this podcast. Sure. Uh, for everyone. There are two. There, there's one about the, make sure you share them both. There's one about the Empire, yeah. and then there's one about the ER6, the, the yeah. uh, car that it became. So... Share them both, so. and anybody that wants to talk with me about it, feel free to reach out and uh, yeah. I, or you can just go on uh, those old threads on uh, DIYelectriccar.com are still there. So I'll, I'll make sure to post the, all the links. So for everyone, Paul Martin, follow him on LinkedIn. He's uh, one of the superstars, and I appreciate you taking the time, Paul. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Same, sir. Well, thank you.